As a parent, I sometimes like to think back to when my kids were little and those three little words that we often heard in my house. That's not fair. <laughs> Can I get a witness? Sometimes failure was, was a two-syllable word. That's not failure, right? Well, today, in our next section in the book of John, we're going to see the arrest and trial of Jesus. Jesus, the innocent, the sinless one. And if there's one thing that we can say about that whole ordeal, it totally wasn't fair, was it? So go ahead and turn to John 18 this morning. John chapter 18. I want to begin at verse 12. We left off last time, and by the way, great job, Bart, the Lord to God be the glory. A lot of people were blessed and encouraged by the message that you gave when I was in Ohio. We left off last time. Jesus was arrested uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. We looked at how he began to suffer even then. Uh, a anxiety, if you will, a suffering so great uh, we, we looked at the medical term hemohydrosis. He was under such... Have you ever really, really struggled with something? You know, just the pressure was unbearable. I mean, his was such, uh, so great that it literally the, the blood vessels in his forehead burst and mixed with his sweat. And as the Bible says, uh, as he sweat, as it were, drops of blood. Uh, quite, he knew what was coming ahead didn't he? The beating, the cat of nine tails, the cross, and that part of his humanity that didn't really want to go through all of that, right? So he struggled in the garden and yet uttered those infamous, wonderful words, wonderful to us, not my will, but yours be done. So we pick up in chapter 18, verse 12. And the Bible says, so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. A little history here. Annas had been the high priest. Uh, and the high priest in Israel was an appointment for life, kind of like our Supreme Court. But somehow he must have gotten on the bad side of the Romans because they deposed him and they put Annas, or they put Caiaphas in as high priest. Uh, of course, that was a Roman thing that was done to the Jews. Annas was still the man, right? So he still had great authority. He was really the guy in charge. So they go to him first. And I'm going to skip over uh, the part about Peter for now. We talked a bit about his denying Christ uh, last week. So go down to verse 19. It says, The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Notice they still refer to him as the high priest. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple 
where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Now, Jesus wasn't being snotty here. He's basically saying, you know, you're going to ask a guy on trial what he said, expecting him to condemn himself. Wouldn't it be better if you ask the people that listen to me day after day as to what I said? They can verify it, right? Makes better sense. But when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by, verse 22, struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? A loyal officer, no doubt, um, part of Annas' security team, blinded by his loyalty. He takes Jesus' words as disrespectful to this position of high priest. And uh, again, notice he refers to Annas as the high priest. He takes it as disrespectful or mocking, and he strikes Jesus. Interesting. Um, Jesus answers him, and he says, Hey, if, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Jesus has this incredible way, doesn't he? We, we see it all through the Gospels. He he just gets right to the heart of the matter. Um, and and he's, he's not vindictive. He's not condemning. But in, in talking to this guy, he calls this guy to confront his own heart. You ever have that happen? I have. Where, where, you know, I'm in prayer with the Lord and he says, now think about this situation here. Why did you do this? Or why did you say this? And then, and, then, and then he goes a little deeper. Why did you really say this? What was really going on in your heart? Because when we have the opportunity to turn in and really uh, genuinely look at ourselves and the real cause for things, we have a better chance for change, don't we? Absolutely. So, Annas, verse 24, sends him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So, okay, Annas here then is the first step, right? He, he would determine if this process would continue or not. Okay? It was going to be based on his say-so. He was probably hoping to get this over with quickly. Tell me about your teaching. That's bad. You're condemned. Boom. You know, just kind of, uh, because they, they were um, part of the unfairness of this. They could not, it was against Jewish law to hold trials at night. Okay. So it was, it was illegal right from the get-go. Um, so he's hoping to you know, speed this thing along for a lot of people here, what's going on, uh, but it doesn't happen. So now it's on to Caiaphas, the official high priest. And here we're going to need to go to Matthew, who fills in quite a bit of the information. Matthew 26, 57 says, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. Okay, the scribes, if you're not familiar with it, were those who copied by hand the scriptures. Okay, they didn't have the printing press. They didn't have, uh, they couldn't just you know, drag and drop, <laughs> you know, like we do with computers today. No printers, no nothing. Uh, so they literally, by hand, translated the scriptures. So these guys spent a lot of time in the Word of God, right? They were educated from, from very early on, 
And these guys were the experts. They were the lawyers. Sometimes, uh, depending on your translation, uh, you'll see them referred to as lawyers, the, the teachers of the law, if you will. So they were the experts gathered here. Uh, experts both in the law and in the oral traditions handed down by the rabbis, uh, which to them was on the same level as Scripture. Okay? Jesus uh, you know, referred to that every once in a while with the Pharisees, like, you know, you... you you strain a gnat and swallow a camel. You know, my, because my disciples are hungry, they're eating with unwashed hands. It's like, oh no, they've, you know, they've committed this unalterable sin because they ate with unwashed hands. But the traditions had come to the same level as uh, Scripture. But remember here, they were looking to get rid of Jesus. They were looking to condemn him to death. And they were going to scrutinize absolutely everything that he ever said or taught or whatever to find something to put him to death. They could only do that with a charge of blasphemy. Now, blasphemy, uh, biblically, is three things. Number one, it's speaking or acting irreverently towards the Lord. Okay, that was number one. Number two, the same towards something considered sacred, uh, like the temple like the altar, okay? Uh, number three, blasphemy was also claiming divinity for oneself. Any of those three things would have been considered blasphemy. They could convict him and uh, sentence him to death. So here they, they've gathered all the experts, the lawyers, if you will, to find the evidence to convict Jesus, something that could be considered blasphemous, even if it was a false accusation. Look at uh, verse 59 of Matthew 26. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, because we know he didn't do anything wrong, right? Uh, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. You see, God, in his wonderful law, had given the Jews a statute that no one could be convicted of a crime based on the testimony of only one witness. Okay, um, you, you, you have to have at least two to corroborate a fact. Can you imagine the problems in any society if you only need... He, he stole $1,000 from me. Oh yeah? Guilty, right? Imagine the chaos we would have. So God says, no, two or three anyway to corroborate something, to establish it as fact. In our own justice system, we have policies and procedures uh, in place governing the gathering of admissible evidence and eyewitness testimony. So, uh, at last, verse 60, two came forward, verse 61, and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now there you have potential blasphemy. Okay, both irreverence toward the holy temple, going to destroy it, right? And you'd have to be divine to rebuild this massive structure that took years to build and rebuild it in three days. But Mark, uh, in his gospel, says, yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. These guys are running out of options here. They can't get two people to agree on anything. All these witnesses, he said this, he said this, he did this, he did this, but they couldn't get to people, and so they're starting to sweat, right? 
And then verse 62, the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Verse 64, Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Scholars tell us that that literal phrase, you have said so, is actually better understood, it is as you say. Okay, That, that makes a lot more sense. It is as you say. So Jesus here, finally, again, no one takes his life from him, right? No one could give an accurate accusation, charge him with anything. Jesus here testifies himself what they need to hear, which was the truth after all, wasn't it? Right? That he was, in fact, the Messiah, the Son of God, and someday they would see him in his glory coming on the clouds of heaven. Praise the Lord. Come soon, Lord. Right? So then the high priest, verse 65, tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. The tearing of the robes, um, more than one culture, but it, you know, it just meant that um, something, it was, it was a sign to express incredible emotion, right? Uh, great pain, grief, fear, astonishment. It's like you say, did you guys hear that? Whoa, you know, blasphemy. He's claiming to be the Son of God. Wow. We don't need any more witnesses. So Jesus then is convicted by the council, sentenced to death. Only they can't put him to death. Why? guess you'll have to come back next week. Find out. Because we'll talk about that. So, what do we do with all this? What do we do with what we've heard, besides knowing that this was totally unfair, that they condemned an innocent man? Besides getting a little history. Peter tells us that Jesus left us an example to follow. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning verse 19, says this, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it, if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Do you realize this morning, and you probably don't hear this in the New Believers class, that part of our calling as Christians is to suffer unjustly? Isn't that what I just read? Do good and suffer for it. Verse 21, for to this you were called. Ouch. 
Probably not something to put on the banner in front of the church. Join our church. Suffer unjustly. It's fun, right? See, the natural tendency that we have as human beings is to make sure that we're treated right, that we're treated fair, right? Right from little, and it's not fair. We have this fair thing going on. We want it, we deserve to be treated right by everybody in every situation, don't we? Or do we? We have this tendency to never want to get, never let uh, ourselves get the short end of the stick, right? To always get in the last word, right? Etc., etc. But the Bible says no. The Bible says we are actually called to follow in his steps. We are called to suffer at times unjustly. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Where, where's the balance in this? Um, is the Bible saying that we should always just be everybody's doormat? That if we are um, falsely accused, that we should never offer any kind of defense, never try to clear our name, just always be silent? No, not at all. Um, the key here is, watch this, the key here is the will of God. The will of God. See, Jesus was not supposed to be vindicated by this group. Okay? He came, he said, to give his life as a ransom for many. That was the will of God for him. He was not supposed to be set free, released, deemed innocent. Even when Pilate tried, which we'll get into next week, Pilate tried to release him. wasn't going to happen. Do you remember, though, as we've gone through this gospel, there were other times when they tried to trap Jesus in his words, right, and discredit him, and how he turned that thing around on top of them and left them amazed. They didn't know what to say, right? Or other times when they tried to arrest him, or kill him, and the Bible says he just kind of slipped through the crowd out of their grasp, right? But now it was God's will for him to suffer for a greater cause. Make a mental note, greater cause. He, of course, was going to pay for the sins of mankind, which obviously we can't do, so that we could be saved. But the same is true for us this concept. It's okay to vindicate ourselves. It's okay to speak up for what is right and what is true as long as we do it within the will of God. What am I talking about? If we are nasty, if we are hurtful, if we are prideful in defending ourselves and demanding our rights, if coming out on top is going to do more harm than good? How many of us have won arguments and ruined relationships? Right? If it's going to be more harm than good, if we ruin our testimony, if we give the church a bad name in the community, we are out of the will of God, aren't we? You've heard the phrase, taking it on the chin, haven't you? There are times when we just need to take it on the chin. We just need to, as I don't know where this phrase comes, suck it up, buttercup, you know. You just got to, okay, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. I'm, not gonna, I'm just going to accept this. It hurts, and it will hurt. 
That's why it's called suffering. That's what the Bible is. Suffer unjustly. It's going to hurt. It's going to be painful. We're going to feel like we've lost, where we came out on bottom. You know, the people have triumphed over us, and it's not fair, right? We're going to feel like that. We're called to that. Did you know that? To it not being fair. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, Paul talks about this church, pretty carnal. Um, There were lawsuits between believers, right? Uh, People who were family in Jesus. Right? We, we, we hear, especially during prayer time, when people come up and say, you know, this church has been such a family to me. They've been such a help to me. We're family. We love one another. We're committed to one another. We're going to talk about that in membership class tonight. You know, when we, when we commit to a church, this is my family. This is, you know, I am committed to these people, to reach out to them, to help them, to encourage them, to love them, even when it hurts. Right? So they have disputes and disagreements, and they're taking each other to court. And Paul says, you're doing it in front of unbelievers. You can't, you can't, not only can't settle your differences peacefully as brothers and sisters bonded in the love and the blood of Jesus, you gotta take it outside the church and sue each other in court. And he says this, why not rather suffer wrong? It would be better, Paul says, to, to be cheated than to sue your brother in court in front of unbelievers. Why? Why? Because on the one hand, they're saying as a Christian to the world, Jesus is the answer. He will change your heart and life. But yet we fight like cats and dogs just like everybody else. You see how that's damaging to, to the name of Christ? How it's damaging to the church? How it's damaging to our witness, right? They went outside of the will of God. Paul says it's better to just be cheated. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it and you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Why? Because we're honoring Him. We're putting his honor above our fair, right? Because our words and actions are backing up what we preach. Because we're willing to take it on the chin. We're willing to suffer for the greater good. Verse 23 of 1 Peter 2, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten You see the example he set for us. But here it is. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. There it is. There it is. We don't just take it on the chin for nothing. We don't just suffer unjustly and just wallow in that. We entrust ourselves to him who judges rightly. So what happened in Jesus' case, in this example that he set for us? Well, in 70 A.D., Rome came in and did just what they all feared. They destroyed the temple, scattered the nation. 
And Israel did not become a nation again until 1948. Wow. So all they feared was going to happen, happened anyway. And Jesus, what happened to Jesus? What happened to the innocent one who suffered? Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was laid low but God exalted him. When we entrust ourselves, when we take it on the chin, when we suffer unjustly for the glory of God, for his honor, to preserve our witness, and we, just, we take whatever unfair stuff comes our way, not to go outside the will of God, right? Not, not going to be nasty, not going to, you know, and if it means... Letting someone else get their way, if it means just bowing out, whatever, I'm going to do that, entrusting myself to him. Because God says in the book of Samuel, he says, they that honor me will I honor. We entrust ourselves to the one who judges rightly. God will do it in the end. We may suffer temporarily, and it's no fun. Let's get the, it's no fun, right? But if we do it and entrust ourselves to him, he will turn that thing around. Uh, Hebrews 13, one of my favorite. What can man do to me? Right? The Lord is my help. What can man do to me? What can any human being do to me? If God wants to bless me, what can any human being do to rob me of that blessing? One way or another, God's going to get it to me. One way or another, I'm going to be vindicated. One way or another, I'm going to succeed because my trust is in him, not in my having to get things fair under my own power. God will work it out in his way and in his time. He will work it out. So, yeah, it's not pretty. doesn't feel good. But if we do it, if we step back and say, what's the greater good? What's the greater good here? To just keep my mouth shut and just roll with this thing? But it hurts, yeah. But what does God say? God says, I'm going to pay you back. You honor me in this, I'm going to honor you. Somehow, somewhere. And, you know, what I found in my life, God does a better job than I do. When I get my way... Things fall apart. It's, uh, good thing my wife's not here. <clears throat> when, when we, I, I've told this before. Early in our marriage, I won every argument. I, I did irreparable damage. Well, not irreparable, but it has taken years, years, to recover what I lost by shooting her down to try to win, to try to come out on top, to try to succeed, to try to be right all the time. Years to undo that. The, the loss of trust, right? Uh, you, you, can't, you, can't, you can't feel wonderful about the guy that puts you down, right? I mean, I never called her names or anything like that, but... 
was always her fault. I could always make it her fault when something went wrong. You know, took years. So, yeah, do it God's way. Take it on the chin. See what he does when he works it out. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, God, we thank you for this example to us. That we don't have to, it doesn't have to be fair all the time. It doesn't have to be our way all the time. It doesn't have to, uh, we don't have to come out on top. Help us, Lord, to realize that as we honor you, it's all going to work out in the end. Your blessing will be upon us. Help us, Lord, to have that kind of testimony, especially uh, outside of these walls where people are scrutinizing. Is this real? Is this true, this gospel that you preach? Does it really have an effect on people? Help us, Lord. People need you so desperately. Help us to be a good example. And we thank you for that. Be glorified in us and through us as you show us your faithfulness. Through Christ we pray. Amen.